Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. Dave, what's the penalty in this country for killing someone? Now, the guy asking me that question 30 years ago, he looked so visibly upset that I knew he wasn't joking, but it's a pretty heavy question. He was serious. He wanted to know what the penalty was in the United States for murdering someone. He was an international student I'd gotten to know as an undergrad, and someone had hurt him very badly. Someone had hurt him so badly that he really believed that the right thing to do, the only thing he could do, was to hurt that person back, and he was contemplating murder. Now, probably most of us won't go to that extreme, at least out loud. But we'll, we'll feel that at some point in our life, too, I think. If we're honest, we probably have already felt that or fantasized about it at some point in our lives. I think most of us can acknowledge that betrayal is one of the most painful experiences a person could have in this life. To have someone you once loved and trusted turn on you and betray you is a pain unlike anything else. And if you live a whole lifetime on this earth, in this broken world, filled with sinful people, you will experience betrayal. And Jesus was no exception to that. Jesus really experienced betrayal. The worst weekend of his life began with two betrayals from two men who were very, very close to him. And this morning, I want to do a couple things. I want to look at those betrayals and try to understand the heart of what drives betrayal. And then look at the way Jesus responded to those who betrayed him. Because I think there is a message in there of great power and hope for us to deal with the betrayals of others to us. And I want to look first at the betrayal of Judas. I think it's arguably, Judas Iscariot is arguably the most famous traitor in all of human history. In fact, he is so identified with betrayal that his name, his first name, has become synonymous. If someone tells you, you are such a Judas, no one says, thank you. Thank you so much for that. It's a negative thing. His first name has become a kind of curse. But long before a traitor or a betrayer commits that single defining act of betrayal, there are deeper roots that go further back. We don't just begin betraying someone in that defining act of betrayal. Our hearts begin the betrayal process way, way before the defining act. 
There was a setting where Jesus and his entourage were dining at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This was a family, very dear friends of Jesus. And Jesus knew that his death on the cross was coming soon. And so he was going around spending meaningful time with people that he really loved and cared about. And as he went to the home of Mary and Martha, Mary, who had a real spiritual sensitivity, she could see below the surface of things, and she sensed what was coming. She had been listening carefully to the words of Jesus. These little clues he was dropping, most others, including his inner circle, missed the message, but Mary heard. And in preparation for his upcoming death, she brought out a very expensive jar of perfume and broke it, and she anointed his feet. And basically, she was preparing him because that's what you do with a body when it's ready to go in the grave. She was acknowledging, I have heard what you're about to go through, and I am with you, and I honor you. I'm bearing some of that heaviness along with you. Well, seeing this very expensive jar of perfume shatter to the floor, I mean, I'm sure the the practical ones, the accountants among them were thinking, couldn't you have just dipped your hand in there? Put a little on him. It would have smelled just as good. And John 12, 4 to 6, gives us a picture of the heart of Judas Iscariot. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who is later to betray him. This is interesting because in almost every mention of the name of Judas, they throw in that phrase, the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. That's like a $100,000 bottle of perfume. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, I think long before we betray someone, the truth of the matter is we began to leave them in our hearts. You know, Jesus had a crew of 12 men, and they all spent the same kind of time with him. They heard the same teaching. But Judas was never really fully part of that crowd. I think we learn a great deal from the life of Judas because it's possible to spend time with, be associated with, travel and be around, share in the work of someone, and still your heart doesn't really belong to them. He was going through the motions, but he was always not like the others. There was always something in Judas that was held back. I think this is a, a simple way to say it. Judas liked Jesus, but he really loved himself. Judas liked Jesus, but he really loved himself. And I think he had his own reasons for following Jesus. And so on this occasion, when he sees that that money could have been donated, and if you donate a year's wages into the money bag of Jesus and his crew, guess who gets to dip in and take a good, good-sized cut for himself? And so feigning concern for the poor, he's outraged. You know, you can talk like you care about something, 
and not care about it at all. I did a lot of reflecting on my own spirit this week. And I realized that I identify with Judas more often than I would like to admit. And I've been asking God all week to purify my own heart. Because I realized that just being around Jesus is not enough. Speaking Jesus' language, doing Jesus' work is not enough. I have to give my heart to him completely. You know what's so remarkable about this is like immediately after this protest, Matthew records this, that Judas storms out of the house and it's at that point he decides, I'm done. I don't think there's a future with this guy. There's nothing in it for me to stay around. I thought maybe if I hung on, I would climb to a place of great power, maybe great wealth and influence, and I would better my station by latching my star to this man. But, you know, it it wasn't going to be that way. He kept talking more and more about dying and having no home and giving up everything and sacrificing. And that was not what drove Judas to want to live. Judas liked Jesus, but he loved himself, and he did not see a future for himself latched onto Jesus. And so he made a decision that day at Mary's house. I think that's the end. If this is what he stands for, and he's okay with this, I am not going to stay any longer with him. And before that act of betrayal, Judas already left Jesus in his heart. It says that he went and sought out the chief priests, and he began fishing for bribes and saying, look, I have an inner, inner, I'm in the inner circle of this man, Jesus, whom you hate. What will you pay me if I hand him over to you? And they agreed to 30 pieces of silver. They counted it out. They paid him long before the dirty deed was done. And Judas, from that point on, kept looking for the perfect opportunity to stab his friend in the back. You know, John 18 really emphasizes that none of the stuff that happened took Jesus by surprise. The events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus were not slamming at Jesus one by one in a chaotic weekend where he was like, what is happening? What is going on? I wasn't expecting this. He knew from the start everything that was going to happen to him. That's what's so remarkable about the way Jesus interacts with Judas, knowing of his betrayal in advance. Even before that final meal in the upper room, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And yet, as he's washing all the disciples' feet, he washes the feet of Judas along with everyone else. And I know you know this, but think about it for a minute, because there are people we know are against us, How hard is it to genuinely, with a whole heart, serve them, love them, tolerate their presence in your home? You know, we can put on an act for a while, but after a time, it becomes too hard to take. Yet Jesus, knowing everything that Judas would do against him, knowing that Judas would trigger the events that would cost him his life, 
reclines at a table with them after washing his feet. It's not like Jesus doesn't care. It's not like he's so obsessed with the cross that the betrayal of Judas is water off a duck's back. He was affected by it. In fact, at one point in that meal, as he's teaching his friends, he quotes Psalm 41.9 that mentions that a friend would betray him. Let me show you the full verse. Some of you have been betrayed enough times, you might want to tattoo this one on your arm just to remember the words because you've heard this, you felt this. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Those words were originally spoken by King David, but they found their fullest expression in this situation that Jesus was in. And countless others since Jesus have felt the sting of those words in their own life. Now, just to establish that Jesus wasn't neutral about this, after saying this, he was so troubled in his spirit that he couldn't keep it in anymore. And he just blurted out to his friends, look, I'm telling you guys, one of you is going to stab me in the back tonight. One of you is going to betray me today. Now, obviously, that got the murmurs going in his group. Okay, if I, if I said to you guys today from this pulpit, hey guys, we just found out someone in this church is embezzling money from the offering. I'm not going to tell you who, but somebody. Could you hear the rest of my sermon? You'd just be like, oh, that guy got a new car, and then that, mm, that. You'd be so distracted. And so he says this, he drops this, because his heart is so troubled, he can't Hold this. And so he blurts it out. Listen, one of you is going to betray me and it hurts. I know it's necessary. This is how the things are going to unfold. But it hurts me that one of you is going to be the one who turns me in. And as his disciples are murmuring, Peter, of course, is like, I got to know who this is. And he sees that he's on the other side of Jesus. So he looks over at John. He kisses him and goes, hey, you're sitting right next to him. Ask him. It all it records all of this. It's fascinating, the details preserved for us in Scripture. Peter's like, John, hey, you're sitting right next to him. So it says John leaned over because they didn't sit at tables. They leaned against Jesus. John leaned back, hey, Jesus, who is it? Now, that's an intimate exchange. Who is it? So it seems, and this is how Jesus replies. It seems that he was a really quiet reply because he said, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that by the act of Jesus pointing him out or giving him the bread, it catalyzed an evil spirit. It says in the other Gospels that Satan had already entered Judas' heart long before when he made the decision to turn Jesus over. In that moment, Judas found the resolve he needed to do what he needed to do. I can imagine the minute Jesus says something like that, because if I said someone's stealing offering money, the thief in this room is the one guy who's got ants in his pants. He's like, oh, man, he's squirming because he knows it's him. 
He knows. And I'm sure Judas is getting very sweaty, very uncomfortable. And Jesus says to him, hey, what you're going to do, go and do it quickly. And I'm sure Judas did not need to be told twice. He bolted out of there. He was so uncomfortable. And Jesus giving him permission to leave was a gift. Now, it's obvious that he was very quiet and told only John about this because the other disciples suddenly see Jesus tell Judas to go and they were confused. They weren't sure what was going on. Because Judas was the keeper of the money bag, they assumed Judas was being sent on an errand to buy some needed supplies for that weekend, for the Passover. That's not what was happening, but Judas knew in his heart what he was going to do. And then John 18, our our text for this morning, where we pick up is, as soon as all of this was done and the meal was coming to a close, Jesus takes his crew and says, let's go outside, guys. Let's get some air. And he walks them outside of the city gates and just to the east of the city, up this little hill and across. They call it the valley, the Kidron Valley. That's a very um, grandiose name for what really is just a dry creek bed. It's a, it's a stream that dries up in the summer and in the winter flows with water. And so they just crossed over it, and there's a little foothill on the other side, and there was a, a, a private grove of olive trees, and they called it Gethsemane. It was a little garden. Many conjecture that a wealthy Christian made that private space available to Jesus and his crew so that they could use it to gather, to teach, to pray, and be unbothered by the crowds. So that's where they were. Jesus takes his group to the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm sorry, I did, I did a cut and paste, and that's not John 18.1. Let me read John 18.1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, he, This is a picture, by the way, of Gethsemane today. It still exists. And you can see just over the horizon there, that's the walls of the city, the eastern wall of Jerusalem. So you can still see that the garden is standing and there are a few monuments and other things erected around there to designate the meaning, the historical significance of that place. It is one of my lifelong dreams since becoming a Christian to go to the Holy Land. And I think in the next five years, Lord willing, he's going to open that door for me and some others here at the church. Let's pray that that would be so. I so badly want to see these places with my own eyes. Here is what may be one of the most uh, painful details about the betrayal of Jesus. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Probably Judas ran out of the house when Jesus said that and gave him that bread, and he probably gathered the chief priests and their angry mob of armed men and brought them right back to the upper room only to find it empty. Where'd they go? Judas, I thought you said he'd be here. We were here just a minute ago. They must have gone somewhere. And then the light bulb goes off. Because he was part of the inner circle, he knew exactly where they'd be because they used to go there very often. One of the most painful elements of betrayal is that a person with whom we had built a relationship had gained some familiar knowledge. We knew things about each other that others would not know. And they used that trusted information against us. Have you ever had that happen to you? You share something in privacy and confidence with someone, 
And that's the very intimate information they use against you in their betrayal. And that's one of the things that hurts the most is not everyone knew this. And yet you, knowing it, used it against me. Judas knew exactly where to go when the house was empty. There's a garden we often meet at. I'm almost 100% sure that they're there. In all of this, there is never a record that Jesus confronts Judas openly in anger. There's never a moment where Jesus says, Judas, what is your problem? You of all, how could you do this to me? If I were Jesus, I would be shouting it at the top of my lungs. Seriously? Judas, really? Instead, Jesus remains silent, but Judas's conscience is screaming. I think this is something we need to learn from the way Jesus responds to Judas. What Judas did was very serious, and Jesus did pronounce at one point in one of the other Gospels, woe to the one who is going to betray me. That's not a personal statement of anger. He's saying the person who chooses to do this, you will stand before God one day and answer for that choice you made. You will not walk away clean from this. The choice you've made in your heart, you will answer for, and woe to you on that day. So he understood, and he pronounced a very heavy burden for the betrayer to think about. But there was never a moment where Jesus looked at Judas and just shouted his anger and indignation. Jesus remained silent in his betrayal. And Judas' own spirit, his own conscience, roared at him. Matthew records for us. Not sure what just happened there. Matthew records for us that when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned. In other words, when he realized when he realized that his betrayal had led to Jesus being condemned to death, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Now, I'm not saying if you're quiet, everyone who's betrayed you will do that same thing. But I think so often, we shout so loud out of our pain that all they see is that we're mad at them. We're hurt by them. I really believe that when we remain silent like Jesus did in faith, so often their own conscience will roar. And the Holy Spirit, if they are a Christian, will shout at them, what you have done is wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. If it's a serious and criminal thing, I'm not asking anyone to remain a silent victim saying, shut up, don't say anything, don't stand up for yourself. But there comes a point at which we believe and trust that what's going to make this right is my indignation, my cries of foul, as if that is going to break through to this hard-hearted person and make them see the error of their ways. The person who would betray you is deeply broken and darkened somewhere so deep inside, your offense will not change their heart. But somewhere along the way, in our silence, 
the Spirit can speak. And this is one of the hardest things for me to wrestle with because when a person hurts me, I want to, at the very least, shout, you have hurt me. But I really believe that the way Jesus set an example for us is that very often in our silence, the Spirit speaks and the person's conscience shouts. Let me move on to the betrayal of Peter, because if the story ended there, it would be bad enough, but Peter's got to have his turn being the idiot, because that seems to be on his business card. I'm the dummy in the crew. I, I am very close to Jesus, but I'm the guy who only opens his mouth to change feet. That's, that's Peter's claim to fame. And so, in John 18.10, as Judas leads this armed mob into the garden, and Peter realizes something's going down. This is not good. I don't think these guys are here for a visit, for a chit-chat. They're going to take him away. And so Peter reaches under his cloak, and he draws out a sword. And I'm sure the other 11 guys are going, what are you doing with a sword? That's, that's just, they, never, they were never armed before. And all of a sudden, on this night, Peter's packing heat. That would be as weird as if we're all hanging out together in, in the city. Some thugs approach us, and all of a sudden, Pastor Jared pulls Hang on, I'm strapped. And you're like, what? What? When did that? It's because I think Peter had enough sense to know things were escalating. And who knows? Maybe the rebellion starts today. I'm not going to be the schmuck who's, who's carrying a Bible. I'm going to have a real sword with me. I've got to have a weapon if we're going to start the revolution. And I don't know if he was just a reaction or if he was thinking about it, but he draws his sword and he says he just slashed at the first guy in line. It says that the guy that he attacked, okay, was a guy named Malchus. Malchus' claim to fame is his ear got cut off. He's recorded forever in Holy Scripture as the guy who's the one-eared man, the Vincent van Gogh of Scripture. And it says he was the priest, high priest servant, meaning he was probably not just a slave, but he was the right hand of the high priest. So likely he was the point man in the entourage and the first guy in line. And Peter just went, yeah, and he missed. He's probably trying to go for a more mortal blow and he grazed the guy and his ear fell off. Luke records that Jesus picked up the ear, <laughs> touched the guy and basically healed the ear. So he's like, hey, there's your ear back. Sorry about my, my idiot friend. He heals him, okay? But this is Peter's response. He's like, I'm going to fight. This can't happen. I'm not going to. And this is the first moment that we see publicly how Peter is betraying Jesus. You might not see a betrayal there, but it's there. I think Peter was very surprised when instead of saying, let's go. That's what kids say these days when they're like excited and hyped. Let's go. I'm sure that's what Peter was saying if he were alive today. Let's go. And he draws his sword. And the other guy's like, what is happening? And he starts slashing. And Jesus says after one slash, stop. Put your sword away. This is not how it's going to go down tonight. Listen, Peter, you of all people need to understand. You should know. Didn't I pull you aside, you, James, and John, on multiple occasions to give you more teaching than the others? If anyone should know, my best friend ought to know. That this has to happen tonight like this. I've already told you in such clear language, I have to die now. 
This is how it's going to happen. I'm not going to kill myself. I will give myself willingly to the hands of others, and they will kill me, and it's necessary for the redemption of the world. We read, especially in, in, in the other Gospels, how agonized Jesus was over the prospect of his own crucifixion. Though Jesus was the Son of God, he wasn't thinking about the cross like, whatever, it is what it is, I'm fine. He was deeply, heavily grieved over it. He was scared over it. And in the garden, he asked his disciples to pray and said, look, I'm having a really hard time wrestling with this. I've even asked God if there were any other way, could we maybe come up with a plan B? I don't want to go to the cross, but at the end of that prayer, he said those fateful words, not my will, but yours be done. He submitted to God willingly, but it wasn't a casual or simple thing for him to do. Peter actually began betraying Jesus even in that prayer because he kept falling asleep. It's like, Peter, this is the big night. I am so burdened. I needed you to pray with me, especially tonight. You couldn't just stay awake for a couple hours. And Jesus, that sense of being alone wasn't just on the cross. Already, others were withdrawing from him, and he realized this is a journey I have to make by myself. Even my most trusted friends cannot be counted on. Here in that garden, Peter's swinging his sword And Jesus is saying, I don't need your sword tonight. I need your support. This is hard enough as it is. If only I could look at my best friend and realize he understood what I was bearing and could just come with me. But no. Even now at the very last hour, you misunderstand completely the nature of the kingdom I'm bringing. How could this be? And he felt even more alone than when that night had begun. Peter, sensing Jesus' disapproval, maybe he's trying to make up for it. He drops the sword, but he begins to follow after Jesus as he is being hauled away to face the high priest. Jesus is brought into the residence of the high priest, and in the courtyard, late at night, there are fires lit, and the high priest is questioning Jesus. And somehow Peter and one other disciple who's not identified, a pretty likely guess that it's John, but we can't confirm that. But based on the evidence, my best guess is it's John. And what we see is somehow the other disciple knew enough people that he got, he got in past the guards and into the courtyard. So they were very close to where Jesus was being persecuted. Now, Peter knew it was dangerous for him to be there, So he's kind of off in the shadows, and it says there were some servants of the household who knew something big was going down. They weren't sure what all the details were, like the bigwigs are upset about something, and that guy looks like he's the one in trouble. That's about all they knew, right? But they're out by some charcoal fires. There's not a lot of light, not a lot, but a lot of heat from a charcoal fire, and they're warming their hands in the dark. And And Peter keeps glancing over at Jesus, seeing what's going on, when all of a sudden he's rattled as somebody looks at him and goes, hey, wait, you don't work here. Hey, aren't you one of those guys who used to run with Jesus? Now listen, I don't know how you would be. I, I like to imagine if it were me, I'd be like, in fact, yes, I am. 
I'm going to be loyal to him to the end. Take me away. I wish I could be that guy. But I think, in my heart of hearts, I pretty much do what Peter did. He said, no. No, I'm not. I don't even know him. At that moment, Peter should have recalled the conversation he'd had just hours before with Jesus. See, Jesus had just gotten done saying, I'm going away now. And where I'm going, you can't follow. And Peter, of course, without even hearing the words, just reacts. Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, and I believe this is the tone. Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? Really? Will you? Very truly, I tell you. Before the rooster crows, which is a way of saying the middle of the night, 3 a.m., before the middle of the night, this night, you will disown me three times. Peter, of course, there's no way that can happen. That's ridiculous. He's sure of himself. And here's the thing about Peter's vow, is I believe that Peter fully meant and believed his own promise. I think from every fiber of his being, from the bottom of his heart, he meant it. Jesus, if it comes down to it, I will lay down my life for you. I don't think the problem was in his sincerity at all. The problem was in his supply. There are lots of things I've said to people. Lots of things you've said to people. I'll pray for you. I'll be there tomorrow. How about I do? We mean them in that moment with every fiber of our being. I will be there for you. I will stay with you. I will be loyal to you. And in that moment, everything in us says, I believe this, but do you have enough in you to make such a promise and keep it? See, I believe Peter, when he said that, looked into his own heart found love for Jesus there and said, what I see and hear is enough. This love I feel for you, I'm going to be loyal to you forever. What Peter had not yet learned was that it was not his love for Jesus that would keep him loyal. It was Jesus' love for him that would keep him loyal over the course of his life. You know, we think somehow I'm going to be true to God by looking in my own heart and finding love for God there. But that's not how love works. The truth is, I cannot love God until I first receive and recognize how much he has loved me. In that moment, in the middle of the night, tired, scared, nervous, tense, and this little girl goes, excuse me, uh, you don't work here, but aren't you one of... And he says, no, I'm not. I don't even know the guy. Peter is revolving into, he's, he's regressing into lizard brain Self-preservation mode. We do that when we're scared. We don't think about principle. We just react and we think, whatever it takes to keep myself alive, I'm going to protect me. That's what Peter's doing. At that moment, though he had just had this conversation with Jesus hours before, he wasn't sure he could remember that. But then, two more people approach him. The others in that circle by the fire go, yeah, actually, the girl's right, aren't you? And he's like, no. And finally, 
one of the guys who was a relative of Malchus, poor Malchus, the one-eared man, a relative of Malchus, oh, hold on now, you, I think you're the guy who cut off my cousin's ear. I would remember that face anywhere. And at this point, Matthew records that Peter called down curses from heaven on them. That's a polite way of saying he started using profanity. I don't bleep and know what, what is wrong with you bleeping people? Bleepity bleep bleep, I don't bleep and know this guy. You gotta be pretty upset when the cussing starts, right? Because, you know, that's when you're really, really stressed. And I know, harvest people, please, please don't pull my, I am not blind to that. Y'all cuss a lot. If I had surveillance going at your house, I would be red on. You, if you had it in my car, I promise you, you'd hear a, a, a spicy word or two. We cuss because when we're stressed, curses come out of our flesh. And if you're not saying them in your mouth, you're screaming them in your heart, aren't you? Am I right or am I? I'm not the only. only. Don't leave me hanging. I know all about you. You know how I know? Because when we're in, in gatherings... And we're trying to do, everyone speaks in such, well, I was actually just praying and having quiet time when this person just, and then that person goes, no, you should hear him at home. That's what Peter's doing. He's so stressed. He's just starting to curse. Going, Look, this is the third time I don't bleeping know the man. And exactly at the moment of that third denial, what happens? A rooster begins to crow. And it's that auditory signal that immediately at that moment reminds Peter, oh man. The sound of that rooster crowing reminds Peter of the words that Jesus had said. In Luke's gospel, he adds a very haunting detail to this whole thing. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed and listened. The Lord turned across the whole courtyard and looked straight at Peter. (laughs) Dude, that's chilling. Peter is all caught up in his moment of crisis. Jesus is caught up in his moment of crisis. And if you read the account in John 18, the whole time Jesus is being accused of all these things and he is denying nothing. And Peter is denying everything. And Jesus, in his place of crisis, looks across the courtyard, locks eyes with Peter as the rooster crows, and he goes, hey, hey, remember what I said. Now, he's not doing it to rub Peter's face in it. But Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. It was remorse, it was regret, but it was also that moment when Peter realized that the goodness in him wasn't in him. He had grossly overestimated his faithfulness, his loyalty, his character. He wanted to be that man, but he couldn't yet be that man. He wouldn't be that man until many days later, on a beach, Jesus would pull him aside, and in the most loving but firm way, he would reconcile himself to Peter and reinstate Peter to his place in the inner circle. At the end of John's gospel, he records that restoration of Peter in beautiful words. And Peter becomes Peter again 
only after Jesus receives him back. It wasn't his remorse, it wasn't his weeping that made him the man he wanted to be when he said, I will even die for you. It was seeing that after so great a betrayal, on the worst night of his life, he, Peter, his best friend, betrayed Jesus with curses and profanity, denied even knowing the man. He washed his hands of him on that night when he needed him most. Such a great betrayal, you don't erase with an I'm sorry and a Hallmark card and a bouquet of flowers. This is bigger than that. It's the kind of betrayal that ends relationships, that burns bridges. And it was Jesus' responsibility, his privilege, to decide what would happen in that relationship. And the amazing thing that Jesus demonstrates is that even after a relationship-ending betrayal like that, he receives Peter back. He gives Peter another chance to be a part of his circle. See, I believe that the pain of betrayal rises out of the love that came before the betrayal. Every day people snub me and slight me, and it doesn't hurt that much because I don't really care about most of them. But the truth is, when you're someone I love and know and trust and you hurt me, it's that love that existed before that makes the betrayal hurt that much more. If I fixate on that betrayal, I will burn the bridge between me and that person. I will use our former intimacy against them and say, you should have known better, you should have been better, I can't be with you anymore because you betrayed me. If you fixate on the violation and on the betrayal, you will set fire yourself to that bridge too. They've set their end of the bridge burning, but you will set your end on fire. But if you begin to look at them and search for the humanity and the frailty and the forces that work in their life, that doesn't justify them, it doesn't excuse them, but it gives you a posture of understanding, of compassion, of recognizing that I am as flawed as they are. Maybe not in this instance, not in this occasion, but I've been where they are before. I've let people down. I've used intimate knowledge against others. I've violated trusts. I've broken promises. Have you noticed that when you're being stood up, you're sitting at that Starbucks 20 minutes in, you're like, I feel like a loser, and where are they? You're just picturing them staying home, finishing their Netflix episode, being like, whatever, I'll get there when I get there. We're so ungenerous to other people when they let us down. But when we're the ones 20 minutes early, we're like, oh, my life is so hard. You have no idea. I hope you understand me because, and we're so ready to defend ourselves. We're so ready to condemn others. When we do wrong, there's a million reasons why when they do wrong is for only one reason. You're a loser. That's human nature. It's the way we seem to be put together. And what Jesus teaches us instead is, look, what if instead of defending yourself, you began with a posture of trying to understand that person. It won't lessen your pain. It won't take away the guilt of what they've done. But the reason you're so hurt by them is because you actually love them. You love them, and that's why the betrayal stings so much. If instead of fixating on the betrayal, you focus on the love you once shared and are losing, in that act, that choice, God begins giving you 
boards with which you can rebuild that bridge. I think Jesus looked at Peter and said, look, I'm not going to fool myself. I've always known what you're like, Peter. You're a passionate guy. On the Myers-Briggs, you would be an off-the-charts, capital, bold-faced F. Peter had zero T, he had all F. Whatever he felt he did and he said, there was no filter. And Jesus knew that about his friend. He made a lot of promises that he meant but couldn't keep. That doesn't mean he was right. It just means he knows who he was dealing with. He knew that that night things were moving awfully fast. It was chaos. Everyone was tense, nervous. Fear was palpable in the air. And everyone was tired. It was late. It was 3 a.m. when Peter uttered his last denial. What are you like at 3 a.m. when you're nervous and scared and tired? Now, do you understand? I'm not saying these things to say that everyone who betrays you is a good person making a bad mistake. What I'm saying is if you begin by saying, I loved you once. What would make you do this to me? Where were you at? What is going on with you? Because my goal is not simply to expel you from my universe. It's to understand, and if at all possible, I want to hang on to this love because I don't want to lose it. I am deeply wounded by what you've done to me, but I'm only deeply wounded because I actually care about you, and I thought you cared about me. I think Jesus also knew that though Peter had really flunked the final exam, God's not done with Peter yet. Peter wasn't supposed to join Jesus and die that night. And I think Jesus knew that. And because Peter was spared, we have two very beautiful books of the Bible. And the early church gained one of its most important leaders. I want to invite the praising to come up. I've got to wrap this up. I'll just end by saying this. In our world, betrayal is final, isn't it? I think most of us are willing to give grace for one, maybe two, three, four small violations. But there comes a point where the betrayal is so great, we presume there is no way forward. And sometimes there is not. Sometimes the violation is so great that the human relationship cannot be repaired in this lifetime. But even if the relationship cannot be restored, I think the heart of God is that he wants us to learn how to receive grace and to give grace. Because sometimes along with that relationship that ends, a part of us dies. Jesus gave grace to Peter. And in doing that to his betrayer, it didn't make the betrayal less painful. It didn't make Jesus feel less alone. But it allowed Jesus and Peter to still have a story after that failure. I know this, that when I've let people down, and I have let people down, all I want in that moment is another chance. I hate when I get to that moment in a relationship with someone I care about where I know it's ending. The hurt is too deep. They've sealed off a room in their heart that I used to be able to walk into. They've locked it, and it's clear to me that they don't want me in. 
And I grieve over those moments. And in that moment, all my heart is screaming is, if I could just have one more chance. Isn't it good news that our God, in the light of every betrayal we will ever commit against him, never slams that door shut for good. Interesting thing about Peter that night was he was so offended and indignant over the betrayal of Judas, he could not see until the middle of the night that his betrayal was greater than Judas. Judas was always a fringe guy, but Peter was his best friend. And Peter's own betrayal was so much worse. Sometimes we're so blinded by the violation of others, we don't realize how great a betrayer we are. And how great the grace of God is every time we betray him. Whatever you hear me saying this morning, the lesson about responding to betrayal does not begin with the people who betrayed you. It begins with you in your betrayal of your Savior and how he always opens the door and gives grace to you. It is how we can keep moving. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And because we so richly receive his grace, we can hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 8, you have received so freely. Go out there and freely give. I know it's not easy to hear these words today. This message is easy to understand. It's really hard to accept. Because the pain and the scars of those betrayals still follow you today. These are not things you can put away quickly. But I want to ask you, the heart of God, not to give up the fight and burn bridges too quickly. There still may be much life left in that relationship. And whereas you may believe that betrayal is final, it's God who writes our story. He may not be done writing it. I will trust the Holy Spirit to say the rest to you. I don't know where that leaves you, but I believe he's going to keep talking if you'll listen. So I want to ask you for a moment of quiet in your heart from where you are right now just to respond to him. And if you have nothing to say, listen in that stillness. And we'll sing a song and we'll close our service. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.